0: Morning church. It's cold, man. What is going on? Um. Name is Branziski, the lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. If you're a guest visiting us, uh, with us this morning, um, we're so honored that you are here with us. We want to let you know that we strive to be a church that is simply all about Jesus. We believe that the call and the mandate of the church is to help other people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. And that's what we're all about. I'm going to jump right into it this morning because um, I believe... Actually, it's not just like when I say that because it's like, hey, because I believe this, it's true for you. No, it's because this is truth. This truth, if we apply faith to it, has the power to radically change your life. 100%. And I believe that what we're going to talk about is oftentimes the very reason why we drift away. From the gospel, why we drift away and our hearts grow cold from the love of Christ, why sometimes we need God to come and to revive us. So what we're doing for these next three weeks, started last week, we're in this kind of like this quasi-series called Ears to Hear, where the heartbeat behind us is that we're not coming with a prepared sermon series months in advance, we're coming in each Monday asking the Lord specifically, what do you want to say to our church? Because we believe that God speaks to his people. He speaks to his church. And we want to ask him, like, in our time, our context, in our season, God, what is on your heart? Um, And so what started to kind of, like, come out of that after Easter, Monday morning, I just started praying. I was like, Lord, what's on your heart? And what started to kind of, like, just be pressed upon me was to dive deeper into these concepts of revival, specifically as we come out of Holy Week. Right When we look at the death and resurrection and even the ascension of Christ, these are actually revival events. These are um, ideas that cause awakening in our hearts that move us from death to life. But like if we were to be honest, many of us don't really understand or even embrace the realities of what happened on the cross and what happened when Jesus resurrected. And so that's why we wanted to talk about this and wanted to lean into some of these things. And last week, if you were with us and if you weren't, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon because I believe it is absolutely imperative to understand what we're going to talk about this morning. We looked at our need and our desire to be awakened to the reality of who God is. And what we looked at was Isaiah chapter six and started to understand that in order for us again to be awakened to the reality of who God is, we need to understand his holiness. We need to understand that he is altogether different, that no one or anything can even be compared remotely to who he is. He is far different, far surpassing than anything else. In fact, when we looked at that story, even the seraphim that were pure and perfect and and innocent, even though they were created, they had to cover their face and their feet in the presence of this holy God. And when we are awakened to the reality of who he is, what happens is that we become awakened to the reality of who we are. We come to see the depths of our sin that goes all the way down to the very core of our being. And all of a sudden we are left with this predicament, what can we do in the presence of a holy God? Like how can we be in his presence and not die? And the answer is you can't do anything. We need him in his grace out of his holiness to come and to redeem, to forgive, to restore, to atone for. So that's why we wanted to dig deep into these uh, these concepts because it's like I think a lot of us in the church, not just here, but I think just generally, we have watered down the notion of the holiness of God. Because we don't want to be told what's right or wrong. We don't want to be faced with those things. We would like to believe that humanity, that you and I, we can be good enough. But the reality is, we don't know what good enough is. And that's why we constantly are pursuing and feel anxious and exhausted all the time because this notion of good enough. Isn't there? And when we look at the church, we see spiritual passion and temperature for the Lord dwindling down. We see people drifting in and out of the church. They come in when they have problems, they try hard, it's not working, they walk out. And this is why we said that revival is not some crazy, ecstatic, supernatural, giggling, falling drunk, off the stage type of thing. Revival, as Jonathan Edwards says, is a return to normal Christianity. Because the church, let's just be honest, we are sinful. And like we, we said, like we're prone to wander. And when we drift away, we need God to come again and to renew us, to revive us as it were. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to come into this in praying along with the psalmist in Psalm 85, 6. Lord, will you not revive us again? God, we need you revive us, awaken us, stir up faith and love inside of us. So last week we talked about the holiness of God and being awakened to that reality and to the reality of who we are. We saw that holiness is the beginning of understanding. This is so important. If we don't understand that God is holy, that he's altogether different, that his holiness cannot be in the presence of evil, that we can't be in his presence with sin in our lives. If we water that down, how can we even understand the significance and the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ? We would have no need for God's grace if we didn't understand that. So the question that we want to lean into this morning is a question that I want you to think about, but not answer right now. And the question is this. Where do you find your validation? What validates your worth? It's an important question to ask. And I want you to be honest. I don't want you to answer it right now because what I want you to do is to hear what I believe God has for us this morning. And I want to encourage you to take notes, to engage with God's scriptures and what God would have to say in the Holy Spirit that would convict of sin and righteousness inside of your heart. Because at the end of this message, we're going to come back to this question and we're going to answer it. Okay? So before we get into God's word this morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3. I feel the need to pray because I really, really, really cannot do this on my own. I want the Holy Spirit to speak and to communicate clearly to us the beauty of this passage. So would you pray with me? Father, I ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit you would reveal our hearts. God, I pray that you would soften our minds, soften our hearts, soften our attitudes now Lord, I pray that you would slow us down. God, I pray that through the power of your spirit, we would put away pretense. We would put away judgment. God, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would even give us a glimpse, a revelation of your holiness. That we would see the depths and the riches of your grace and mercy. Lord, I pray that um, (laughs) as I try, and what it feels like so far over this week, and what it feels like stumbling through this passage, God, I pray that in my weakness, God, that you would show yourself strong. God, I pray that you would speak to your children. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For no one will be justified in his sight, By the works of the law. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seed by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. And God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one, one of works, no, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Six years ago, when I was 36 years old, I'm trying to put this in perspective. 15 years after graduating from college, I finally wrote my first official resume. And I hated it. I I absolutely hated, right? Like I started to think about it. It's like man, it's like I can't believe that for many years I had I had jobs. Okay, for those fifteen years I had jobs. Just letting you know, I wasn't a freeloader. But the reality is like like, I was hired ahead of time, like, in my pastoral positions, and then the, the, like, the church, or the senior pastor, or the director of operations, like, well, can you just, like, give us a resume, just so we can, like, follow the policy, and we can put it in your folders, like, yeah, sure, whatever, so I just kind (laughs) of whipped one up real quick, but, because the reality is, like, back when I was 23, when I started to go into ministry, I saw pride in my heart, and, and I made a deal with God, I was, like, God, I will stay in ministry, and I will do all this stuff, but I do not want to go searching for a job. Like I don't want to put my name out there and start kind of like job hunting within the pastorate world. I want you, God, to lead me and cause me to be where you want me to be so I don't get trapped into climbing the ranks within the church as it were, right? And so for those first 15 years of ministry, God did just that. Like every uh, position that I was in, the Lord led it. He made it happen. I didn't go, hey, I hear you're looking for a college pastor. I know of one guy. Right? Like, I I never had to do that, thankfully. Right? Now, during 2016, my wife and I, um, as we were up north, uh, when I was the senior pastor at a church up north, we started to feel released from that position. But we didn't know what was next. We just knew that God was saying, hey, your season's coming to an end. God wasn't bringing anything forth yet. And then along comes Austin Oaks Church. The search team contacts me, and they reached out and asked, hey, would you be interested in putting your name into the mix to see if if God would have for you to be the next senior pastor? And I was just like, yeah, sure, let's find out if this is what God is doing. Do you have a resume? (laughs) No. Is it necessary? It's necessary. All right. So I started to write a resume. And in the process of writing a resume, I discovered some things that were stirring in my heart that made me sick. I found myself being tempted to write it in such a way that would make me look better than what I really am. I felt myself tempted to want to exaggerate, like, my accomplishments. Like, I I found myself tempted to polish it up and make it look super, super good so that way they would go, yeah, we want that guy. In other words, I was trying to validate myself in their eyes. I was trying to say, I am good enough to be your senior pastor, and, I, and, like, that made me just kind of, like, sick to my stomach. Like, I can't believe that that temptation was present in that. Because I was like, God, I'm so sorry. I said that. If you wanted me there, you'll make it happen. I don't need to make an effort or try to prove myself or any of that kind of stuff. Because if you want me there, you'll make it happen and nobody can stop that. So, okay, God, I am so sorry. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> Nothing wrong, okay, nothing wrong with writing the truth of your accomplishments and experiences in your resume. It was the temptation that hit me. And I would say it's the temptation that you feel as well in trying to validate your worth. So in that moment, I prayed. I said, God, redirect me. And over time, um, as, during the interview process, my wife and I knew that God was calling us to AOC, but the church didn't know that yet. But the job... <laughs> And the job hasn't been formally offered because the church didn't vote. And so we were invited to come down for this final visit where we got to meet some people, but not everybody. And I was slated to preach on a Sunday morning. And after that service, the church would immediately vote for me. And if you thought the resume was tempting to validate oneself, whoo, what to preach? Oh my goodness. Okay, which, which message have I given over the last 10 years that's an absolute home run? What message can I give to wow them that they'd be like, oh, man, we want him to preach Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Like, I couldn't believe the temptations that were hitting me. I mean, it's just like, it's not a normal sermon. It's like, this is your job. This is your future. Most people who don't even know you, they're going to judge you based upon your sermon. You're going to walk away, and they're going to vote. I mean, preaching normally is like, okay, this is the flock that God's entrusted me. God, how do I encourage them, convict them, lead them to you? But this was like, hey, hey, you all going to vote. I know maybe you're not listening to what the Lord has. Vote for me. Watch how good this is. Really, Brandon? I had a serious heart check. Lord, I am so sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me. I mean, the reality is there's a temptation... In all of us, and when I started to realize this, I started to discover that this, this temptation to validate myself based upon my performance in order to show my word, in order to be accepted, in order to please certain people, it, it's not just in the realm of a job. It's not just in the realm of a resume. I started to see it everywhere in my relationship with my wife. Her love is conditional based upon my performance, even though that's not what she would ever say or has ever even shown me, but it's what I start to believe. I gotta do this. I gotta be good. I gotta be good. I gotta do this. I gotta make sure I don't screw up here because if I do, she might leave me. And then when I started to have kids, I realized that I was in there. I gotta be the perfect dad. I gotta validate myself in front of my kids to show them that I'm an amazing dad. I saw it everywhere. <sighs> Friends, like, listen, There are moments in all of our lives, moments in all of our lives where this is crystal clear. Like, were we like, man, I have tried to validate myself. Yes, I have tried to please people. I have tried to do this. But what's even harder to recognize and even harder to admit, if we were honest, is that the majority, if not all, of our operating system in our life is organized around our striving to be validated. Am I worthy Am I accepted? I'm worthy of this or that position. I'm worthy of being on this or that team. I'm worthy of this or that relationship. I'm worthy of that because of X, Y, and Z. So accept me based upon this. Let the record show I did not pull out the greatest sermon I've ever had. I did pray. I did ask the Lord to see if he would. Nothing like validating yourself right now in front of the church. (laughs) Yes, that was pre-planned. That's why it didn't stick. This is the way... This is the way that almost all of life is, isn't it? It's like based upon your performance. And some of that is right and appropriate, but what ends up happening is that we start to really buy into it and we start to like have that principle or that value drive us at every level. It starts at a young age, kids and tryouts. I mean, tryouts for sports teams are getting younger and younger and younger. I mean, it's insane. It's insane. Academics, testing ACTs, SATs, STAR tests, all the types of things, your grades and your transcripts, even trying to get your father, like, you know, I was just thinking about this, like, Chris's dad's hand of approval. Hey, I'm worthy of your daughter's hand in merit. You know, it's like all of those types of things, like, over and over and over. We live with this driving operating system in the background that if you are good enough, you'll be accepted. If you are good enough, you'll be accepted. And so we strive so often to validate our worth by our performance record. We do this everywhere. Now, not only that, like this concept of validating ourselves is also why so many people around the world would argue that all religions of all cultures of all generations are basically all the same because what you're trying to do in any religion, regardless of what it looks like, regardless of what the name of your God is, regardless of the culture, it's all about you trying to validate your moral performance before God to be good enough before God to make sure that there's a connection with with the divine, and if there's any eternal life, that you could go there, which is why they say all religions are the same. Over and over and over, you got to do this, you got to do that. What's good enough, we really don't know. But if I do this, if I can validate myself, then I'll be accepted. Who, who, are you, who of you in this room are people pleasers? I want to know. I'm just kidding. Because you know, I want you to be my friend. No, it's like, 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 like why do you people please? Because you want to validate your worth. Right? And if if you find yourself stuck in a pattern of people pleasing, friends, I'm telling you, that highlights how you relate to God. I got to please God. So that means I have to do X, Y, and Z. So let me ask you question number two that I want you to answer now. And I want you to be honest because this question will help you to to see how maybe you experience or how you think of God and how you relate to God. Here's the question. How does God feel about you right now? Don't don't give me the Sunday school answer unless it's authentic. How how does God feel about you right now? Like when God thinks about you, what's he thinking? And, and, And furthermore, like how do you determine that? Like, how how do you determine how God is feeling towards you or thinking about you? Like, what is the grid? What are you basing your answer on? What's the, the paradigm? Is it based upon your quiet times this week? Is it based upon how many times you've prayed or how many times you've sinned or maybe done righteous acts this week? Like, how are you basing it? Is it based upon how you treated your wife or your husband, your kids, your neighbor's dog? I don't know. Like, what are you basing that on? Oftentimes, when I ask people in the church, hey, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Overwhelmingly, the answer I get is this. I know I should blank. I know I should read my Bible more. I know I should pray more. I know I should serve more. I know I should go to church more often. I know I should, I should, I should, I should. Over and over and over and over. You know what that is? That's us trying to validate ourselves before God. You're looking to your performance record and thinking that if I did X, Y, and Z, maybe God will feel better towards me. He'll show more favor. Maybe he'll bless me more. Or he'll think better of me. Whatever it is. Like we won't outright say that. In fact, we're not always aware of that. It's oftentimes the background system of our lives. We read verses like Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And when you're operating in this self-validating system, you're like, that's a hope. I hope that's true. But I'm not really sure. And it's not really a reality to you. And so you're left with two options. Either I try harder to be more and more religious, or I just like give up and walk away because it's too demanding. And I'm not experiencing the love and the freedom that they keep talking about. Here's what I've come to discover, and I was really, really thinking about how to say this because I was like, man, I don't want people to think that I'm a heretic, but I want you to hang with me because sh- I'm going to walk through Romans real soon. We tend to, especially in evangelical circles, come to see or understand the gospel only as a means of forgiveness of sins and a ticket to heaven, Like, that's how we equate it. Like, we just go, it's forgiveness of sins and a ticket to heaven. That's what it is. And I believe the reason why that is the way we think about the gospel primarily and almost exclusively is because we are so caught up in our own moral performance that we are very well aware of our shortcomings and our failures that we constantly ask for forgiveness. But here's the deal. We need more than forgiveness, we need righteousness. We need more than forgiveness. We need righteousness. And I know that's the part you're like, wait a second. That's all forgiveness. That's it, right? No, it's important. Forgiveness is important. If there's sin in your life, you should and you ought and you better confess your sins. Because Jesus came to forgive us of our sins. But we also know that there's so much more. To the gospel. There's so much more to what happened on the cross that Friday. Something happened in the realm of righteousness that is imperative for you and I to understand what revival is in our hearts. That's why I want us now to go to Romans chapter 3, verse 20 through 24. Verse 20 For no one will be justified in his sight. By the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. I absolutely love the fact that it says in his sight. Not in the sight of other people, but in the sight of a holy and perfect and pure God. No one, no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law. But now, apart from the law, super important. The righteousness of God has been revealed. It's been attested by the law and the prophet's It's another way of saying all of the Old Testament has pointed to this. It's been leading to this moment. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption, that is in Christ Jesus. Up to this point in Romans, Paul has been building an argument to clarify the human predicament before a holy God. Chapters 1 and 2 has been all about that issue. There is internal conflict within the church between Jew and Gentile, primarily around validating oneself through religious action. And so Paul starts out right away in verse 16 of chapter 1 to make sure that we're talking about the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. We love verse 16. We talk about verse 16 the most and just kind of fly through verse 17. Because words like righteousness and justice or justification... Just They're not words we use, and so it just kind of goes right through our mind, and so we like to stick on to things that preach well. For in it, in what? The gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed. Through the life of Jesus, primarily through his death and resurrection, the righteousness of God is revealed, and it's From faith to faith, in other words, it's from generation to generation, the way of receiving it is going to be the same. The righteous will live by faith. The power of God is the gospel. Where we see his righteousness on display through Jesus There's something powerful about the gospel in that it reveals this righteousness. And I want you to know, chapters 1 through 4 and even going on, you don't see Paul talking about forgiveness of sins. He's trying to unpack the power of the gospel which is wrapped up in this concept of righteousness. This is so incredibly vital for us to understand. Righteousness is not... A word we use, how many of you use the word righteousness with your friends this week? You know, maybe like back in the surfer times, like, dude, that was so righteous, right? But it's like we usually use it in a negative sense. Oh, aren't you so righteous, right? Like, don't you think you're above and beyond all that? don't you think you're perfect and all that? So we use it in a negative sense. So when we think about it biblically, it just doesn't connect. In fact, we as Christians in our culture, we have been like almost like spoon-fed to be afraid of coming off as more righteous than you are. Right? And so we just kind of like do that. So when we hear these words, it just doesn't quite land. So let me help define this word for a moment. Righteousness Biblically understanding is like this, it's a relational term that speaks about how two people are standing in relationship to each other. Is their relationship right? Is it good? Is it holy? Without flaw or without error, right? It's, it's, it's a status of a relationship where behavior and conduct reflects the standing of this relationship. Okay, so if I were to go in simple terms, it would just simply mean this. In the right so that you can be in a relationship with God. (laughs) So if you were just to go to verse 20, we can't be righteous by the law. Whoa, what do we do? If I can't get myself to be right in relationship with God on my own, how does that happen? This is where this is beautiful It's the power of God. The gospel is because of the righteousness that God revealed. Those who are in right standing before God live by faith. And up to this point, Paul doesn't explain that. He just says it because he wants us to understand the human predicament. Because he goes on in chapter 1 and chapter 2, essentially saying that the wrath of God has been revealed to the whole world to Gentile and Jew alike. In fact, he goes through all of chapter one and the Jews are like, oh, we know, Paul, what you're talking about. You're talking about those pagan Gentiles. That's not us. We have the law. And Paul's like, time out, buddy. Since you have the law, the only way to be made right in the presence of a holy and loving God is if you 100% perfectly obey the law 100% of the time. So since they don't have the law, they're still under God's wrath apart from the law. But since you have the law, you're under the law, and the law testifies to your sin. So he's trying to get everybody on the same page. In other words, saying like godlessness and righteous unrighteousness is everywhere. Like we all experience the fruit of this sin. We all experience the fruit of unrighteousness through pain and suffering and evil and brokenness. And the fact that we can never quite get to where we want to get to in our own character. Right, We see the scriptures talking about when we're underneath the wrath of God that we are alienated from God because of this unrighteousness. Because we can't be made right on our own before God. Like So we're alienated and because of sin, we are under condemnation because of the guilt and we are enslaved to its power and we are utterly hopeless because of the depravity we can't ever get ourselves to be 100% perfect. It's just impossible. So we're under God's wrath. Just like we said last week, John 3.16. We love John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But like if you were with us last week, we also said there's a, there's a word that we tend to ignore. And that's that whoever believes in him shall not perish. God so loved the world that he gave. Why? So we wouldn't perish. Because we're underneath the wrath of God. So Paul's making it painfully clear, you cannot validate yourself by your moral performance. You can't. It's absolutely impossible. In fact, Romans 3 verse 9, you just read verses, <laughs> verses 9 through 18. It's not that encouraging. What then? Are we even better off? No. No. There's no one righteous. No one Righteous, not one, no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God, all have turned away, all have become worthless, there is no one who does what is good, not anyone on and on and on and on. Paul's making it crystal, crystal clear. And he says in verse twenty, No one can be justified by works. You just can't do it. It's impossible. And so that feels extremely depressing. You see, the law of God, the commands of God, essentially is proposing this, that you need to obey all of it in order to be accepted. You need to obey 100% of the law, 100% of the time, in order to be made righteous in his presence. And scripture's like, it's not gonna happen. It's just not. That's where we need to understand this. Obedience to the law can never transform the heart. It can't do that. We need something else. Our obedience to a set of standards have no power to revive a heart. You can command me all day long to eat salad. And I may do it. But I will never change my heart. I will never love salad. In fact, if you were to put brisket, And salad on the same plate. And you told me you cannot eat brisket. You must eat the salad. I do not care. I will sin and eat the brisket. (laughs) It just won't change. That's this idea. There's no one righteous. But humanity is clear. Everybody is seeking to be righteous. We all are. We all are striving to validate ourselves our reason for existing our purpose our worth we're all looking for someone or something to accept us that's why we need a different righteousness that's why i go back to the resume the resume is a performance record right here's what i have done academically job past this is my record you show up with that resume and you hope that that performance record opens up the opportunity for you to get that job when we come to god we are essentially giving god our moral performance resume god hears what i've done and you're hoping that it's good enough that god will be like you know what way to go A few mistakes there come on in it's just not going to happen because he's holy. Righteousness can never be achieved on our end. Justification now is the act of a judge, or in this case, God declaring something as right or just and innocent. Okay, like this is so important. Like forgiveness is essentially saying, I forgive you. You are off the hook of punishment, but it doesn't transform any heart. It doesn't change anything. In fact, forgiveness doesn't even guarantee the fact that you can be in the presence of God. Because apart from righteousness, you can't be in the presence of God. Forgiveness does not make you righteous. Forgiveness just means you're not punished for what you've done. We need righteousness. So incredibly different. They are both essential. No one will be justified in his sight. All have sinned. All have fallen short. Nobody can make themselves good enough. No one. Zero. I want you to do something with me, okay? Okay. Engage with me. Raise your hands. Let's do this in participation. Have you ever thought something like this? I'm not really a bad person, but I know I could be, and I know I should be far better than I am. How many of you thought that? You just proved the scriptures, because you're never going to be right. Everybody struggles for it. We're all gonna to have to stand before God and give an account and give him a resume. Here's everything. Go back to Isaiah chapter 6, when he stood there in the presence of a holy God. He realized, Woe is me, I am dead. And then the seraphim came with the, the coal touched his lips and said that your iniquity is removed. In other words, your sin is forgiven, but he's still in the presence of God. And then the next line is said, and it's Your sin is atoned for. This is this concept of justification and righteousness without being atoned for, we can never be in the presence of God. In fact, did you know that the Bible is not out to answer the question, how to be forgiven of your sins per se? It answers that question, but the greater question from cover to cover is asking the question, how can we be in the presence of God? Think about the tabernacle, think about the temple and all of the things and the sacrifices, all of it, the veil being torn when Jesus conquered, when He died on the cross. Like all of it is about how can we be in the presence of God? How can we be in a right relationship with God? Verse 21, chapter three. But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, from the Old Testament, verse 22. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. and There is no distinction. God's standard is perfection. And Jesus was the only one who lived perfect. He's the only one that lived a righteous life. And now we are told that because of his life... We can be justified freely. We can be given the status of innocent and free. We can now be invited into the presence of God and to receive all that Jesus received. Like this is amazing. This is absolutely stunning. It's by his grace It's by his grace. You all with me? Because we're going to pick up some speed here. I'm running out of time. And this is so incredibly good. This is where our hearts get aflame. Is in understanding justification. Not so much in understanding forgiveness. Like forgiveness is great. We need to be forgiven so we can have fellowship with one another and with God. Absolutely. But we can never be in the presence of God unless... Unless we receive by faith the righteousness of Christ. This is so good. How can I be in the presence of God? How can I be in the presence of God? Oh, I lost myself. Sorry. Oh, verse 23 for or 24. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption. That is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption is a word buy back or to restore. And I knew at some point in my life, I would be able to use this as an illustration. Don't judge me. The movie Dumb and Dumber. There's a scene in the movie. I know we got a picture. I'm not sure. Yeah, there's a movie, or there's a scene in this movie where Lloyd trades in the van for a moped for their cross country journey, and Harry says to Lloyd, "Lloyd, just when you, th- when I think you couldn't possibly do anything dumber, you go and totally redeem yourself. <laughs> our relationship is restored. Jesus paid the price for our sin. The wages of sin is death. That's our debt." And that's the price that has to be paid. It requires a perfect resume. It requires a perfect life. Jesus' life being taken on the cross was the price in order to redeem us, to restore us. Grab hold of this. Write this down. Faith is presenting to God what Jesus did as yours. There's a subtle nuance in that because a lot of times we like to say like he did it for you. He did. He did it for you out of love. But we got to understand we 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 can claim this as mine. Like what Jesus did, his righteousness, and like it's in essence Jesus going like here's my resume. You can use my resume to the Father. And so when we stand before the Father, we are righteous because we received Christ's righteousness, his perfection. It's now ours. And therefore, God can justify, declare innocent, welcomed into his presence. We see this word atonement, or in this passage, God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood. These are big words, okay? Like righteousness and justification, and now we're gonna throw out this word atonement or propitiation. This word atonement is so rich, it connects to the Old Testament. And they all knew exactly what Paul was saying. Propitiation, or Jesus, like being the mercy seat by his blood is the way that we understand that the wrath of God was poured out fully on him. That Jesus was the atonement or the the necessary and all-sufficient sacrifice. He was the one who was able to take on the full wrath of God for the sin of the world. That's what a just God requires. When Jesus died on the cross... The fullness of God's wrath was there. And it's no longer on you at all. How beautiful. God's righteous and just anger, which was directed towards us, is, was put on Jesus. And it's not a contradiction to love. God loves us. He loves his son, Jesus. But because love hates what destroys what they love... He had to deal with the sin that has destroyed his creation. This is where atonement happens. You see, in the Old Testament, in the, they would have this feast once a year, and it was called the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. All sorts of purification that had to happen, and, and he would like sprinkle blood on the altar right, to make atonement or a covering so that he can be in the presence of God, so that he can be declared innocent, guilt-free, sin-free. And so families or individuals would bring a pure and spotless lamb on that ceremony on that day. And they would take it to those who worked at, that, at the temple or at the, uh, t- uh, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And what they would do is they would lay their hand on the head of that lamb. And it was a symbol by faith that I am transferring all of my sin onto this pure and innocent lamb. And this lamb is going to absorb all of my sin. And then this lamb is going to have its throat slit and his blood shed. It will pay the price for my sin so I could be declared righteous. This was just a symbol. Where it says that God overlooked or passed over sins in the past because it was pointing towards Jesus who is our atonement. He's the Lamb of God. So listen, when you receive the gospel, when you say, yes, Lord, I receive your sacrifice and your righteousness, what we are essentially saying by faith is us going, I am taking all of my sin, past, present, and future, and I am choosing To put it on the head of Jesus. And as I do that, it's as if it's no longer on me, but it's on him. And when he died, he took it all. And his blood was the atonement for my sin. And God declared me righteous. So powerful. So if you want to say I have faith in Jesus, you have to understand that if you say you have faith in the salvation that Jesus offers, you are literally placing all of your sin on the head of Jesus and leaving it there. And you're going to take what is rightfully his. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in other words, this is what theologians call the great exchange. He who knew no sin became sin. He became the adulterer. He became the murderer. He became the cheat. He became the liar. He became all of those things so that we can become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. He took all of our sin and he traded us his righteousness. So I can take the resume of the life of Jesus to the Father and say, here it is. And God's like, innocent. See the difference? Forgiveness releases us from that punishment, but it does not usher us into the presence of God. Forgiveness doesn't declare us righteous. The righteousness of Christ, when we receive it by faith, becomes credited to us. It's given to us, or in theological terms, it's imputed to us. And when the Father declares you as righteous, you are righteous from that moment on forever. Here's where we screw up Is we think it's a process. That's sanctification, that's not righteousness. And so we strive to still make ourselves righteous. And every time we do that, we mock the cross. We mock the sacrifice. <laughs> and so what we tend to do in the church is like, you know what? Man, great message. Love Jesus. So good. I'm really going to try harder now. I'm, I'm really going to go at it. I'm really going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give. I'm going to fast like no one's business. I'm going to go to church every Sunday. And so, again, we slowly drift into our performance record. And when we start slipping up, we start to feel guilty. And then people ask, hey, how are you doing with your walk with Jesus? I know I should. And we don't want to come to church because we already feel this sense of guilt. But friends, you have been declared righteous. You, you, You can't change that. In fact, did you know that Satan's number one strategy on you is to distort that? When Satan tempted Jesus, it was right after the father said over him, in front of everybody, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased. That's a declaration of acceptance. And what did Satan do to Jesus? If you are the son of God, prove it. If you are a Christian, prove it. I mean, if you, if you really did believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, why are you still struggling with pornography? Guilt. Shame. Why are, still, why are you still get angry? I know, I gotta work on it, I gotta try so much harder. And God doesn't really love me. I, he would love me more if I didn't. He would think better of me if I didn't. Right, like Satan loves to come and start to mess with that. <laughs> and so a lot of times... This is what our faith looks like, okay? Friends, every illustration falls short, okay? Hang with me. Imagine this balloon being the gospel as we oftentimes understand it and represents what we believe would make God accept us or validate us, right? And so let's just imagine that like up here is where God's presence is, Right, and so our effort is constantly like this. This is our experience more often than not in trying to follow Jesus. It's up there for a bit. You're like, oh, got to do it again. But I really fasted this week. (laughs) And, oh, crap. Relate. Relate. But imagine a balloon, the real gospel, filled up with eternal helium. <laughs> it doesn't leak. And this is like Jesus' righteousness saying, here, this, this, this is your gift. Here. You can be forever in the presence of God. It's for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did it for you, man. like a little boy. You're like, <laughs> oh, I know. That was totally impromptu. Um, I was going to let it go, but I thought Greg was going to get mad at me, so I didn't. But like, like, that's it. Like, You don't have to do it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to achieve it. You don't even have to keep it up there. That's what Jesus has done for you. So here's What I want to encourage you, because this last verse in Romans 3, verse 27, goes, where is boasting? Where is boasting? It's excluded. Because we have nothing to bring. We can't ever validate ourselves by our own efforts. We boast in Christ alone. So I think a great way of thinking about righteousness and justification and atonement is to think about repentance, but thinking about it in a different light. Instead of like thinking about repentance of of a certain specific sin issue, what if we saw it this way, a repentance from our false justification, a repentance from our false righteousness of my own effort to be right with God to think that somehow I can make him think better of me, earn this, earn that, prove this, prove that. Instead of resting in the peace, understanding that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because you are declared right forever. In looking at Romans 5.1 and understanding this verse where he says like, therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God. I don't have to keep hitting the balloon up. I don't have to wonder if I'm good enough. I don't have to try to get people's approval because I know who I am in Christ. I know what he's done for me. I know that his love can, I can never be separated from his love. I know that perfect love dries out fear. like. That's faith. And faith is saying, I'm going to lean into this. I'm going to trust this. I'm going to receive this. Regardless of how I feel, I'm going to believe this. And when we start to understand, like when Hebrews says that we can boldly approach the throne of grace in our time of need, the only way you can boldly approach the throne of God without dying is by receiving the righteousness of Christ. And because that's yours, you have access to the throne room. In fact, did you know that that's the only way you can be adopted by our Father in heaven? Is by receiving the righteousness of Christ. You become adopted as sons and daughters. And so what I want to do as we end is just, maybe some of you just need to like, for the first time, maybe put your faith in Jesus And not like going, is it about being good enough? Christianity isn't about moral modification. It's about us recognizing that, man, I'm a sinner. And he's a great savior. He's a holy God and he's done it all. Like maybe what you need to do is to put your hand on the head of Jesus and say, Jesus, take all my sin. And just realize you're free, justified. And for some of you else in this room, you need to confess the sin of justification, your false justification. Is your wealth really just your wealth or is it a means of justification? Is your relationships really just relationships, or is it a mean of justification, so on and so forth? Confess that. Confess that. Lord, revive us. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. In Christ alone, the weak made strong through the Savior's love. Jesus, thank you for doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. Thank you that you became sin so that we can have the righteousness your righteousness. We can be fully accepted, freely forgiven, redeemed, restored, reconciled, adopted. Lord, forgive us for doubting your love. Forgive us for doubting your forgiveness. Forgive us for thinking that it's conditional. Forgive us for trying to justify ourselves even now and trying to be more religious. Lord, the Pharisees were very aware of their sin and they they really went after repentance of sin and forgiveness, but they tried to justify themselves by their own acts. Thank you that the gospel is unlike anything else in this world. You are unlike anything else in this world. You desire so much for us to be in your presence that you literally did everything possible. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would stir up faith that maybe this morning they need to receive this gift of righteousness by faith. Maybe they've never truly placed their sin on the head of your son, Jesus. Maybe they've taken a few and tried to validate themselves in other areas. God, I pray that you would save them, that they would move by faith. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that are stuck in people-pleasing tendencies or trying to even think that they have to appease you and please you. Or maybe they're wrapped up in a false justification of proving their worth in this life. So Lord, I pray that now as we sing and as we worship, that your spirit would minister to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name.